Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, guys. I am delighted to have you both on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Dr. James, you and I have not talked in, I think, probably 150, maybe 200 episodes. Greg, you and I, gosh, I could sort of recall some of the conversations you and I had like two, two and a half years ago pre-pandemic sort of conversations, but we haven't warmed up on any of that stuff. So maybe we'll get some of that warmed up today. I'm delighted to have you both here. Um, I, I kind of have a sense of the direction we're going to go, but the, we always invite our guests to come in with a big idea or bold opinion. And I don't require that uh, that you necessarily tell me where we're going to go. Uh, Dr. James, let's start with you. How about we yourself? 
So my name is Russell James. I'm a professor of charitable financial planning at Texas Tech University. I actually spent about uh, 11 years in planned major gifts fundraising, but since that time, I've just really been focused on all kinds of uh, research and experiments to help understand how to encourage generosity. So that's what I do. Yeah, that's what you do, Russell, and I've always enjoyed uh, reading your material. Um, It's always fascinating stuff. Greg, why don't you uh, tell us who you are? Sure, thanks. Hi, I'm Greg Warner. I'm the CEO and founder of Market Smart. Uh, also, some might refer to me as a ticked off donor who de- <laughs> decided to create software to help make the uh, donor experience more valuable. Because when you deliver value to donors, they in uh, they respond with donations. Yeah. Uh, so, guys, we always ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I know between the three of us, we could probably sit here for hours with big idea or bold opinion. I think we'd sync up on probably 80, 90 percent of them, and then we'd probably banter around the other 10 or 20 percent. Um, Greg, I think you're going to kick it off. What's our big idea or bold opinion today? Yeah. So the big idea really revolves around uh, what I learned in sales And I know some will say um, fundraising and selling are not the same. They're similar. They do have some differences. But one thing that I learned in fundraising, I'm, I'm sorry, in sales that applies to fundraising very much is that telling is not selling. And similarly, uh, and, and that works that works in, in sales. I mean, if you talk a lot and you try to tell people into persuading them to buy, it just doesn't work. But what does work in both sales and in fundraising is asking questions. And I'm very thankful to Dr. James for essentially proving that out through research. <laughs> so it substantiates my claim, but questions are the key. Questions. Yeah, yeah. So, Doctor, a book that I think we're going to pretty much sort of center the conversation on today. You've got a new book out that's part of a series that uh, the Socratic fundraiser using questions to advance the donor story, the fundraising, uh, which is all part of the fundra- fundraising myth and science series. How about you uh, sort of respond to Greg's comments there and tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Well, certainly agree with the idea of questions being more powerful than statements. And at a really fundamental level, we've actually run experiments where we give people the same set of information about a charity or a project or a cause. And we find that if we give them that information by stating it, uh, they are dramatically much less interested in making a donation than if we instead uh, ask them some questions about what's important to them, for example, about the charity, the cause of the project. So we're definitely able to see that at a real simple level, questions are more powerful than statements. Uh, But really what we spend time doing in the book is to move beyond that and to say, okay, so asking questions is good, but we've got to go a step beyond to understand what exactly is it we're trying to accomplish with these questions. And what I suggest is that there's actually an underlying story that we're trying to advance, and that story is the donor's story. And it has some core elements. We begin with the donor's identity. We connect that in with the challenge. The challenge promises a victory, and the victory needs to be 
personally meaningful by connecting back to the identity of the donor. So that identity challenge, victory, back to identity uh, cycle is actually the underlying story cycle. And we can actually help the donor to construct their own story that can lead to really powerful gifts. So, for example, if we want to start out by helping the donor to connect their identity to a challenge uh, or a cause or our organization, then we ask them about their people, their values, or their life story and how that connects to the cause. That could be something as simple as a question that uh, says, uh, so how did you first get connected with this cause? Um, Now, we can ask those questions, but what's important is we're not just making conversation. We're actually trying to pull those pieces of information. Uh, Did they happen to have a family member who uh, also cared about this cause? Uh, uh, And uh, tell us about your earliest experiences with this. Uh, uh, Or uh, if it's a university, uh, tell us about your journey since you left the university. Again, trying to pull out those story elements. Now, the the second half of that is where we try to help the donor to identify a personally meaningful victory. Now, one of the ways we want to do this with questions is we start with relatively open-ended, what I like to call blue sky questions, where we just ask them about, hey, if money were no object, what kind of a difference would you be making at this organization? Uh, Or what's the most meaningful thing you could do with your money? There's uh, In the book, there's a couple hundred different examples of questions uh, that are all about either helping the donor to define a meaningful victory or helping them to connect their identity elements, their people, their values, or their life story with the cause or the organization or the project. So that's really the basic underlying concept as we move from just asking questions to asking questions that tell a story. It's deep, right? (laughs) Well, here's the thing about this deepness is that it's, it's no different than selling somebody something that they already kind of want. It's just that they don't really know how to get it. Most decisions of consequence are decisions that require the help of an aide, a counselor, a salesperson. And I know the the word salesperson gets kind of um, a bad rap. Honestly, sadly, so does fundraiser. You know, Mm -hmm. what people want, they don't want salespeople and they don't want fundraisers. What they want are facilitators. They want someone who will ask questions about them, not, I mean, them, the donor or the purchaser, not tell them how great the organization is or the new car that they're selling is. It's about asking questions to find a fit and to help somebody move themselves forward in the consideration process, not to try to move them in the consideration process. That's what questions do. They help people determine for themselves what's good for them. And Greg, let me pick up on what you were saying about uh, the uh, attitude towards the fundraiser, uh, because there's actually a really important story connection 
with that. Now, these three elements where we move from identity to challenge to victory and then back to identity, uh, that's actually certainly not a new concept. We, in fact, see these same story elements in what's been called the universal hero story or the monomyth. You know, whether you like the original Star Wars or the uh, original uh, yeah. Matrix uh, or The Hobbit, these are all essentially the same story where we yeah. begin uh, by understanding the uh, potential hero's uh, backstory and setting. This is how we learn about their identity, people, values, and life story. And then what will happen is a challenge. Now, in fundraising, we call that the ask. Uh, and that challenge then gives them an opportunity to choose to either stay in their small, self-focused world or go on a journey to impact the larger world that can be a bit scary. That's the same challenge that we present to the donor. You can stay in your own small, self-focused world of personal consumption or you can go on this adventure to use your wealth to make an impact on the larger world. Now, the next part of the story is through all the trials and tribulations, ultimately, the hero wins a victory. Uh, and that victory is personally meaningful, meaning that that victory will bring a benefit back to the donor's original uh, home uh, or some source of their original identity. And the donor, uh, excuse me, the hero is not only victorious, the hero is also transformed. They are personally transformed. They become a different person. Well, this is the same journey that we want to encourage with our donors in the donor hero story. Now, if you embrace that concept of that very powerful universal hero story, and by the way, this comes from the 1940s. Joseph Campbell published mm -hmm. a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, suggesting that this story is found across all cultures and even across all times. If you start with that fundamentally powerful, attractive human story, it does something else. It actually creates important character roles for the other players. Now, the character role for the fundraiser is uh, actually a role that's found in the original Star Wars and in Matrix uh, and uh, in The uh, Hobbit. It is the guiding sage who challenges with the choice. So this is Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in the original Star Wars making the challenge to Luke. This is Morpheus in The Matrix making the challenge of taking the red pill or the blue pill, or of course, Gandalf the Grey in The Hobbit of challenging to leave behind the Shire and go on an adventure to make a larger impact. So the reason that's important is there's so much fundraiser turnover, so much difficulty in keeping uh, especially new fundraisers in the field. And I feel a lot of that is actually a story problem, because if you tell someone that their only value is to bring home the cash, that their actual work that they're doing has yep. no meaning, it's simply about bringing home cash, that's going to be a little bit discouraging. And the last thing I'll say about this story is that uh, it actually has a really important role for the nonprofit. The, the nonprofit or the charity is the hero's magical instrument or weapon that helps them complete the journey. So I like to think about it this way. The, the nonprofit in this donor hero story is the hammer of Thor. Now, the hammer of Thor is really powerful, but the hammer is not the hero. 
Thor is still the hero. It's just that the hammer makes him so much more powerful to be able to accomplish those goals. So that's a, a way that we can talk very positively about the charity, but not let our fundraising messages dissolve into something that really just sounds like, hi, I'm Russell. I'm fantastic. Can I have some money, please? And a lot of charities fundamentally are just delivering that message, which is not as compelling for the donor. Yeah, I think, and 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 Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't, I haven't pieced together your quote unquote story necessarily in the entirety, but I certainly get the notion of being a pissed off donor, for example. Um, but Russell, one of the things I'm, I'm certainly interested in both of your opinions on this point. One of the things that this sort of story notion that sort of has always bugged me in in these conversations when because fundraisers love to talk about story is I don't know that we like to hear the stories of our donors. I think we like to think of ourselves as storytellers, right? So we run off to storytelling conferences so that we can get really good at storytelling. But I don't know. (laughs) Guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we're advocating here. Let's make it really clear. We're not advocating to be great storytellers. I think we're being really great story listeners, right? Asking questions. And I'm thinking, Greg, again, clarify clarify with me if I'm wrong, but had, had someone listened to your story... Right. And given you the opportunity to tell your story, your experiences might have been very different. And Russell, that's also where we're going with the Socratic fundraiser, the Socratic. I mean, everything that's when we talk about anything that's Socratic, we're talking about basically a dialogue centered around asking questions in order to gather and piece together that story. Am I right? All right, so I'm going to unpack a whole bunch of stuff because you, just, do. you just you lobbed <laughs> one up there, and I'm just going like, to smack it. Right, so. Yeah, look, when I first started hearing about the storytelling conference, and I've never been to it, so please, you know, don't send me hate mail. I don't know what they talk about there. But the implication is that, yes, we have to become better. Fundraisers need to become better at telling the story, our story, what the nonprofit is doing, what the program staff, what we're doing. We do stuff, so give us money. Right. All of that is very transactional and it doesn't really it makes the fundraiser feel good. But again, telling is not selling. Asking questions is there's an old adage that people forget. It's if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. (laughs) Now, that rings true because. That's what fundraisers do a lot of times. They ask for money and they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just kind of join the board and give you guys my opinion on stuff. And But don't ask me to give and whatever. But, you know, so the thing is, is that telling is very self-serving and it feels good to the people in the organization. But that that the purpose, their purpose is not to make themselves feel good. And if you think of it from the donor's perspective, nobody likes to help a braggart. It's it just it's not fun. What are what are donors most interested in themselves? Now, that's disturbing to some in in our space because they don't want they don't like that. Right. You have money. We're doing good stuff. Give us your money. In fact, a lot of times they may even say they ought to give us money, right? But it, the the long and short of it is, is that just doesn't work. 
it doesn't work. So organizations need to understand that it's mostly about listening and asking questions. And if you ask the right questions, which I have to applaud Dr. James, he put together hundreds of questions that he didn't make up. He got them from the best fundraisers in the world who helped him create this this whole um, catalog of which questions do you ask at what times for what kinds of gifts and at what stage of the consideration continuum? Because there are different kinds of questions that you ask based on where somebody resides in the thought process for giving. It's an art. It's a very sophisticated craft. And uh, fortunately for us, Dr. James really put the pen to the pad and he he put them all down. They're all there. It's in it's just 1200 pages of reading. <laughs> so so Jason, you make a really important point and uh you know, if you can't suffer through the 1200 pages, I'll give you the five words that sums up the whole point of all of the advice, which is to uh, that the is to uh, advance the donor's hero story. Yeah. Now, when you think about that, advance the exactly. donor's hero story. That's different than let's tell the donor's hero story. Well, no, to advance, we've got to see where are they in that journey, and then we help them to move forward in that journey. Now. Jason, you you point out something else that's really important, which is a fundamental truth that the most attractive story for me is my story. The most attractive story for Greg is going to be Greg's story. The most attractive story for the charity administrator is going to be the charity's internal hero story. Um, Whereas for the donor, the most attractive story is going to be the donor hero story. Now, this is a real challenge because by and large, what fundraisers are doing uh, is they are telling the administrator hero story. We're so fantastic. We're doing all of these great things. uh, Therefore, we have earned your money. We deserve your money. Now, that is a very powerful and useful story inside the charity because it is a story about the charity administrators and their heroic work. Unfortunately, in that story, the donor actually plays a really minor role. They just come on the scene for a cameo. They lay money at the feet of the heroic charity administrators to honor their heroism, and then they disappear. Well, that's actually the kind of story that, look, that'll get you the pat on the head gift, the isn't that nice for you gift, but it's never going to get to the major lifetime investment type of a gift uh, that is uh, requires fundamentally a, a different story. And this can create a conflict because as fundraisers, we're almost standing but between two worlds. We've got the internal world that uh, of our organization that runs off of the administrator hero story. And then we've got the external world where if we actually want to get into those major investment gifts, we've got to be telling a story that delivers major value for the donor and enhanced identity, personal meaning, that sort of thing. Well, that requires that we're advancing the donor's hero story. And so oftentimes we can be 
caught in between these two. And if you recognize that there's fundamental underlying differences in this story, then it helps you translate a little bit when that comes into conflict. Because I got to be honest with you, most of the time what happens is that fundraisers say, okay, the administrators love this administrator hero story. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to feed it out to donors. Not going to work very well, but we'll get some small gifts and my boss will be happy with me because they love that administrator hero story. I can get my copy approved very easily. They read it. They say this is fantastic because they're compelled by it. But ultimately, that's not what leads to these major lifetime investment gifts. That's about advancing the donor's hero story. And we can do that through questions by helping the donor to see what is that next step. And also, as being the guiding sage, we can pick up pieces about what the donor's connections are, what's meaningful to them, and connect them with what is possible for our organization to do. And that's what comes up with the compelling challenge that promises a victory that is meaningful for the donor. I want to jump in with something here that maybe for listeners that that may be having a little hard time understanding, you, you really have to split apart the fact that most fundraising storytelling and solicitations are done at arm's length and transactionally, Mm -hmm. right? This is unhealthy for the long term. And what we're talking about is more of a dialogue. It's a long term. It's not an instant gratification process. We're talking about helping people find massive meaning in their lives through giving, becoming philanthropic and giving through the charity because the supporter wants to find meaning doing things they can't do. <laughs> they can't possibly yeah. go dig a well in another yeah. country to get water. That's, they just can't. So they're giving to the organization, but really giving through it. And the bigger the gift is, the more meaning they can find, the more value they, they attain. But this is very different from the transactional arm's length solicitation methods of events, telemarketing, sure. direct mail, and email. And we just have to make sure to understand we're talking about big, 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 big gifts here. And let me also add on to that, that certainly this Socratic fundraising in its traditional form uh, has been the fundamental process that's involved with very large gifts uh, fundraising for a long time. However, technology today and much of what Greg works with is actually showing you how you can do that at scale, where we can uh, ask questions, we can get donors to think about things, we can follow them through that journey because of the technology capability abilities that before that could only be done one-on-one, but now it can be done beyond that. And of course, that can start with something as simple as the donor survey, but it's got to continue beyond that, right? That's that's the basis where we begin and we learn some of those pieces. But Greg knows a lot more about all that than I do. I just well, know the underlying theory that it works. It's very powerful. And today, which is different than a few decades ago, we can actually scale it. I'll, I'll know, just give of, you this. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. You know, one of the things, and you guys know this, Greg, you might know that Russell, you and I haven't had as much in-depth conversation, but I, I got to be real candid with you guys. And you guys know this if you know me really well. Uh, and you certainly know some of my opinions. I don't think we want to have conversations with donors. I don't think, our, I don't think the large majority of our fundraisers out there, I, I, you know, the idea when I saw Socratic fundraiser, I was like, "Yeah, that's great." 
but I don't think 60 or 70% of the people that are out there fundraising actually want to sit down, you know, with, with all the infighting that we're doing, for example, within the fundraising sort of professional community, uh, you know, I kind of read between the lines and I don't see either side or any of the sides, whatever, how many corners there might be. I don't see anybody actually talking about who's going to actually raise the increase the likelihood that we're sitting across the table having meaningful conversations. I mean, that's what you and I, Greg, talked about a number of years ago. How the hell do we get more fundraisers in front of donors? So that they actually discover, I am quite convinced, I am absolutely convinced that if we could get fundraisers and donors alike sitting across lunch tables, having Socratic discussions, we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have today with retention and with donor, you know, donor, donor attrition and, and, and turnover amongst our fundraisers. Because from that Socratic discussion that we're having, uh, is all the meaning that human beings derive. I mean, there, there's extraordinary meaning that emerges from this conversation here. This is what human beings do. Fundraisers don't know how to, large numbers of fundraisers don't know how to do this with their donors. Well, <laughs> a lot of the, the truth is a lot of them want to. There are also many that don't. Okay, so the, the ones that are supposed to be working with major gift, philanthropic-minded, wealthier people they yeah. want to, but they're told that they have to go, uh, you know, pile cups on a table at the next <laughs> event, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that that kind of gets in the way, or they have to help stuff envelopes for the next uh, low dollar acquisition mailing. So uh, you're more convinced that okay, okay, so I can appreciate that. So you're more <laughs> convinced that we actually have conversation desiring fundraisers out there. But the environment in which they operate doesn't allow them to do that. That that would be your well, case, Greg. <laughs> it's more than my case because, and <laughs> and I'm going to speak because this is Dr. James's research, is yeah. that if the fundraiser help, is successful in helping the donor find meaning in their life, that takes away from the heroic heroic nature of the administrator's role. They can't be the hero in the story if the fundraiser is actually doing their work. I know there's going to be administrators who are going to be just sending me uh, ticking boxes, and I'm going to have to well, make yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and and, I'll, and, I, and it, it sounds like I could be pissing off a lot of fundraisers. You might be pissing off a lot of bosses, and maybe James, Dr. James, you're going to sort of level this out. And I have said this repeatedly here on the podcast that I think fundraising has a supervisory problem, which is essentially along the lines of what you're saying, Greg. So, Russell, uh, unpack that. I'm genuinely interested in what Greg just said um, because I'm, yeah, I'm totally of the opinion that we've got a lot of in, in, in perhaps in smaller shops, we've got a lot of boards and bosses essentially getting in the way of these conversations. Yeah, so there, there's definitely challenges uh, on all sides. Let's start with the basic challenge. You can have fundraisers that listen to the concept and they're like, okay, but I've never done that. I don't really know <laughs> what you're talking about. And and, yeah. and that's really what this is all about is to say, here's a couple of hundred questions, but not just random questions. Yeah. It's okay, here's three steps. Yeah. Now here's 
50 flavors of how you might do that step one. So pick one that you like, maybe two, and get good at those one or two things so it becomes more of a paint by numbers. Like, oh, I get this. I can start this process. I can do this. For example, you know, if the challenge is, boy, we, we want to meet with donors more, well, fundamentally, there are three different messages you can send for that. Uh, that is, I'm interested in your story. I need your help or I can help you. So, you know, I need your help. If you've got a new dean or executive director, uh, I'm new here. That's a great reason to go on a listening tour, to ask some questions, tell me what I need to know, or just the I'm interested in your story. Uh, that certainly works, especially if you've got a pre-existing relationship or the I can help you. My job is to help our donors give smarter. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, then I can share some stories about someone who's made a particularly impactful gift. Maybe it was to endow a particular part of operations, or maybe it used some other sort of complex instrument that allowed them to make the gift and also take care of their income needs, or whatever the case may be. There's a hundreds, hundreds of different examples, but it is that mindset that says, hey, I'm here to deliver value to donors. And, and that, I think, is oftentimes a big barrier for fundraisers because in the administrator mindset, the fundraiser's role is it's kind of unpleasant. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's just something we got to do because we just need that money so badly. But the actual work of the fundraiser is seen more as being extractive of the donors, right? The donors are the ATM and the fundraiser is the stick we need to use to whack that ATM to get it to spit out the money. But if we instead understand that actually fundraising can deliver deep meaningful value to donors and that the fundraiser plays that advising or guiding sage role in helping the donors to accomplish that personally meaningful life journey or life task, now all of a sudden, I'm actually more interested in having those conversations rather than the traditional view where I'm just there to try to shake them down for money or to get something out of them. It is so much more attractive if I understand my role as I'm here to help. I'm here to provide value to the donors. And that makes people more interested in the conversations and they begin to think of things in a different way. I like to put it this way. Look, there's lots of small organizations that love to dream about one day we're going to get that X million dollar gift. Okay. What I'm saying is instead of doing that, turn that around and start dreaming about one day we're going to be able to deliver a donor experience that's worth an X million dollar gift. Well, that's not fun and fantasy. That's hard work, but that's actually how you get to those kinds of gifts. It just requires sort of flipping the script in terms of what is the role of the fundraiser in this process. So I'm going to add to that that a lot of organizations, especially internally, leadership, board members even, administration, they don't know what they're really selling. They're selling the delivery of meaning. That is the value. And people are willing to give millions and billions of dollars to organizations that can help them find meaning salvation, repayment, whatever it is that is in the donor's eyes, 
meaningful. And you can't understand what that is to deliver that value unless you ask the questions. So what I would love to see in organizations is a lot less of, did you call them? Did you engage with them? Did you put it in your donor CRM? Did you visit them? And did you ask them? And rather, hey, how are we doing in delivering value to that individual and helping them find meaning in their life? Where are we on that, Miss Fundraiser? That's how we should be talking internally to one another. Where are we in the, in the level of value that we're delivering and that the questioning to make sure that we're aligned and that there's a good fit? Instead, we look at metrics and activities which and then we we try and pound the hammer on things as if we're going to get a better outcome. We're not um, unless we change the whole paradigm and think about how we're delivering value. Is there something, uh, Doctor James? You'll really get this. So, uh, and I'm not going to suggest that Greg won't either. But um, <laughs> I'm not in any way. Thank you. Probably won't. <laughs> I just know that Russell, you come from academia, so you'll totally get this. Um, uh, that, that's the only reason I say that. Um, a lot of us didn't get taught this way. We didn't get taught. You know, a lot of schools, some of our best schools on this planet are use the Socratic method, method as a means of teaching students. And so that's mm-hmm. that's in some ways what you're what you're getting at here. Mm-hmm. And and so perhaps some of the question is and 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 this is in some ways some of the critique that I think Greg you and I have sort of had when we've gotten together and we've talked about the way that professional development plays out in the fundraising space. It's not like we sort of come to this, a lot of us, having been educated in Socratic classrooms. And so a Socratic classroom, for example, for my listeners who don't sort of understand this, the teacher doesn't have a whole lot to say, for example. A lot of times the Socratic you know, professor who's using the Socratic method oftentimes puts very little but very substantive content sort of into the discussion. And then you have a discussion that sort of emerges amongst the students. I don't know that we've been educated that way, Dr. James. I mean, is that part of the problem? You actually dive into the processes of the most successful fundraisers, whether that yeah. large-scale studies that look at the top 20% performers at large organizations, or just getting to know some of these super successful folks, you'll actually see these methodologies. Now, they may not be theory stuff and Joseph Campbell and all the stuff I get into, but they're doing it the right way. And they're very often doing it with questions. And the other challenge fundamentally can be this, is that there is this wide split between what can get somebody to give you a $20 gift and what will get them to make that major lifetime investment gift. And so sometimes you get people that, you know, learn about, okay, this is how we can get a bunch of people to make a bunch of $20 gifts. And so therefore, I know fundraising. And if you actually look at where the uh, net money comes from, it doesn't come from that little corner. Uh, you know, we don't live in this uh, 80-20 
We live more in like the 82 world where 2% of our donors are actually going to generate 80% of the value. And that's more on the uh, large major investment gifts, whether those be legacy gifts or lifetime gifts. Um, and those are a different set of decision-making processes. And so sometimes we get people who are, are experts, but they're experts corner of the field that doesn't generate that many dollars. Now, the reason actually administrators love that corner of the field because it's basically just all about spreading their heroism. And isn't this great? And okay, we didn't net that much, but 40,000 people got letters with our hero story. And it isn't that fantastic because they're all about advancing the administrator hero story. Okay, don't, J- Greg, hold on to that thought because I know you've got one, but I've got to ask Russell this. I, Russell, I have always been convinced, and I talked about this in the first book, about this inverse relationship between growth and control. And I've always made the argument that fundraising is a function of growth and we've got a bunch of control issues, right? But what you, <laughs> but you just sort of, you sort of just got me thinking. I mean, I'm thinking about that boss who wants his or her hero story told. And would you argue that it's less about control and more about just feeling like your story is being told? You know, because I'm constantly saying, I'm I'm constantly saying either directly or indirectly that fundraising is all about because we're because it's so ambiguous and so it seems so unpredictable that we're just designing it in a myriad of ways so that we feel like we're in control. But are we really just designing it in such a way where we feel like the story actually aligns? With what you know, with a, that it, that it makes it feel like it's our story. I mean, is that what you're basically saying? Administrators, insiders love this kind of fundraising, even if it's not particularly effective. And they love yeah. it because, look, you know, my favorite story is my story. The administrator's yeah. favorite story is administrator hero story. So, so, yeah. so they do love that. All right, you know, Greg. At the end, but yeah, let me take my gloves off and just kind of sock some things here. Okay? <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm just going to lay it down. All right. The sector is making a big mistake because they think that the low dollar transactional aspect of fundraising is actually necessary. Our data that I've been collecting for 10 years by building something called the fundraising report card, I'm not trying to sell it because it's free. You put your data in it, it gives you all the charts you need, but I get to see what's happening in the sector and we have over 10,000 organizations using it. So what I see is that the low dollar transactional methodology results in terrible retention. It's under below one in five will ever give again. And then the third time it's way, way, way lower. So the the sector somehow has told themselves that there's this pyramid that if you could just get them to give 20 bucks, then you get them to give 50, then it'll be 5,000. Then it's going to be a million. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. What they're doing, what they're really doing and what they should do, and of course, this then plugs my system, is they should think of either low dollar transactions as leads. They are leads. They are leads to be asked questions to find out who is really interested and capable, according to the donor, not some spying system like a well screening or whatever, but I'm talking about asking them Do you have appreciated assets like a farm or a business or a house or several of them that you would like to give to find meaning in your life? And you can do all that without asking them for 20 bucks. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're driving them away before you even get a chance to ask them questions and invite them into the true dialogue that actually makes impact for your organization. Well, and I'll say Greg not only gives away his scorecard for free, he gives away all my books for free too. So he's got all the digital versions. So Russell, a- I, I, I got to tell you, Russell, you sit between me and Greg and Greg and I'll say some crazy shit and we'll get you in trouble. So <laughs> it's a real problem. I, just- <laughs> I mean, you're basically sitting between the two guys that like to uh, say some pretty bold stuff. So Greg and Russell, we, we lose our listeners here in a few minutes and I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss anything. So the uh, first, first and foremost, we were talking about the uh, Russell, Dr. James, your your new book, the Socratic fundraiser, using questions to advance the donor's story, which is part of the fundraising myth and science series. But I don't know that either one of you have sort of told me: is there a collaboration here going on, or what sort of work are you guys doing together? Because I certainly want to understand that uh, before we uh, before we wrap this up. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Yeah, so look, Russell and I have been friends. I think it's been over 10 years now. Uh, it began when I made a mistake and he corrected me. Thank you. And he did it publicly, which is fine. I, I make a lot of mistakes. Not everybody corrects me. You you correct me, Jason. So that's fine also. <laughs> I'm, I have humility, believe it or not. And if I'm wrong, I, I will fall on my sword. So, uh, but ever since I discovered all of the unbelievable knowledge and, and PowerPoints and information that Dr. James has, I, I, I made it um, part, well, firstly, because it's good for everybody for me to try and promote it. So I've got 30,000 blog subscribers and like 20,000 followers on LinkedIn. I can, I can help. But what we've done here is um, I, I particularly like to simplify. I hope that's not an insult, Russell, is that I like to simplify the um, professorial nature of what he puts together. And this has been my gift since I was a kid is taking a book's worth of stuff and turning it into a seven word slogan. That's why I opened my, my marketing agency and everything. So I'm just think of me as the conduit for simplification and for promotion for these great ideas. And there's, there's nothing else in it really for me. Cool. Cool. Well, let me read that again. Uh, the name of the book uh, that we've been talking about, Dr. Russell James, The Socratic Fundraiser Using Questions to Advance the Donor's Story, the Fundraising Myth and Science Series by Dr. Russell James. Dr. James, where do you want people to go find this? Do you want them to reach out to Greg? Do you want them to reach out to you? Do you want them, uh, where do I get a copy of this? Yeah, so uh, I mean, of course, you can go on Amazon and pay for it. But if you go to uh, Greg's website, you'll actually get a connection where you can uh, download uh, all four uh, books. I think even audio books too, if you prefer that sort of format um, uh, for the uh, for the uh, series. Um, so I'd recommend you go that way. You know, one of the reasons this is such a great partnership between Greg and I is fundamentally, I'm just a professor, right? I just sort of put the material out, and he does a great job, not just of sharing it, but of repackaging it and making it um, useful and practical uh, for folks. And so he's got 
all sorts of interesting things, trainings and other things that he's taken the material and then sort of taken it to the next level of being practical. Uh, and uh, so, so I think you probably best serve. I mean, I'm happy to send it to you for free if you connect with me on LinkedIn, whatever. But, but actually, I think you'd be best served uh, to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to for me to send you to Greg because he has so much more uh, applications of the of the material. But hey, if you do want to get a PhD or go to grad school, I do offer that online and on campus. So if you're in if you're in that bent, then then come to me. Dr. So here, James. I'll give, I'll give you the URL, sorry, because uh, we didn't really do that, is imarketsmart.com forward slash donor story, all one word, imarketsmart.com forward slash donor story. That's the free books right there. Yes, great. And we will certainly put that in the show notes and in the comments section on the LinkedIn post. Guys, it has certainly been a pleasure uh, we have all uh, we have all enjoyed conversations in the past. It's certainly a wonderful opportunity to catch up. You're certainly always welcome back. Um, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.